Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on July 19, 2023. Now, we sit down to record our podcast today following a raft of new economic data that are shifting the market landscape. Just a few weeks ago, the market was preparing for several more rate hikes and a well-telegraphed recession, but now consensus seemed to be building for just one more hike next week and no recession at all. Two-year and 10-year Treasury yields have retreated some 30 basis points from recent peaks and stocks have rebounded. Several encouraging data points have helped stoke this rapid change in market perception. The June miss in non-farm payrolls, along with the significant downward revisions of prior months, was followed by a friendly June CPI release that carried unexpected evidence of accelerating disinflation. And the latest reading from the University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Survey and the Small Business Optimism Index also show signs of some economic buoyancy. So talk of Goldilocks has taken hold in the markets, and with it, the risk-taking allure of not-too-hot and not-too-cold investing conditions. With this backdrop, our timely topic today is Commercial Mortgage-Backed Securities, or CMBS, and we are fortunate to have with us Karthik Narayanan, Head of Structured Credit for Guggenheim Investments, and Tom Nash, a director on the CMBS sector team for Guggenheim Investments. Welcome back, Karthik, and welcome for the first time, Tom. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Glad to be here, Jay. Thanks. Likewise. Good to be back, Jay. So, as I said, our main topic today is commercial mortgage-backed securities. But by way of introduction, uh, let's start, like we sometimes do, with a brief primer on structured credit and then drill down into what makes CMBS unique. Karthik, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Jay. Just starting off with the fundamentals of structured credit. First of all, structured credit, it's a fixed income credit market, meaning that a large part of the investment thesis and the diligent work we do being a credit sector is figuring out the ultimate risk that an investor gets their money back um, and a return in the form of a yield that exceeds similar tenored government bonds. So being a credit sector, there's always some chance you don't get all of your money back, and that's credit risk, and that's what we're spending time analyzing. Um, Furthermore, if you contrast structured credit to the corporate bond market, now in corporate bonds, the repayment of bonds or debt instruments that investors are, are investing in is the promise of the borrowing company or an operating company Um, And sometimes there's a pledge of assets if it's a secured bond or or a bank loan. Um, This is generally what we would call unsecured debt or in the case where there is some security secured debt. Now, in contrast, when we look at the structured credit market, this is about a $3 trillion market. These are not linked to any um, promise of repayment by a corporation, but instead rely on two layers of collateral to provide repayment. The first and foremost is some kind of contractual source of payments. These might be mortgages on commercial properties, container leases, leases on data centers, auto loans. So there's a a pool of contracts that's the first layer of repayment or security for the structured credit investment. The second source is a pledge of assets. So today we're gonna speak more about 
CMBS or commercial mortgage-backed securities. So in that example, the first layer of payment is the commercial mortgage, which is a contract for a borrower to pay back a lender. And that's sort of, that's the first layer of security for the CMBS securitized um, investor. There's also a pledge of the underlying property. So in the event that the contract doesn't create enough cash to repay uh, the CMBS um, structured credit investment, there also is the property underneath that can be um, you know, sold under duress to, to pay back um, the structured credit investment. And you know, we talk about structured credit as sort of one broad asset class, but one of the hallmarks of structured credit is um, the diversity of the collateral that back these deals. So structured credit could involve corporate bank loans in the case of CLOs or residential mortgage-backed securities in the case of RMBS. And as we'll speak about more here, um, CMBS, which is backed by mortgages on commercial built uh, commercial properties. And as we will speak more about here, CMBS is backed by mortgage loans on commercial properties, such as offices, hotels, multifamily apartment buildings, logistics centers, uh, et cetera. So with that, I'll turn to my colleague, Tom. Tom heads up our CMBS vertical. And uh, together we can take a deeper dive into CMBS. I'll begin by zooming out just to make sure we level set as to what we're really talking about here in CMBS. So there are two ways to invest in commercial real estate. And you'll hear me call that CRE as an acronym on this call. The first is you can buy properties, meaning you collect every dollar of rent, you suffer every dollar of value decline, you are the owner of a building. And often you do that with leverage in the form of a mortgage extended to you by some party who's lending money, whether it's a bank, an insurance company, or in cases, a CMBS trust. Equity investors have the highest risk and the highest return because they are on the hook for those price movements. And in bull markets, many know the rewards reaped by successful equity investors. And in bear markets, many know the troubles that levered investors sometimes faced. It's important to level set here that CMBS transactions are backed by pools of commercial mortgages or loans. In each and every case, they are supported by an owner of a property beneath them whose contractual obligation it is to make payments in order to service that debt. In exchange for trading off the upside of property value potential increases, a lender can only get back the principal they lend plus a rate of interest, thereby creating lower risk and lower reward. Having level set that CMBS transactions are comprised of loans, we then have to ask ourselves, what is the difference between CMBS and the loans held by, say, a bank or an insurance company? And principally, there are no differences. CMBS trusts compete to create loans against bank lenders, insurance lenders, and other private lenders in the market. What makes CMBS transactions unique is that they bring together investors with different risk-return appetites and capital requirements to invest in the same pool of loans in different ways. So to frame a stylized example, a given CMBS transaction may be backed by 50 loans. Some investors will want lower risk than traditional bank or insurance company lenders and will be willing to take a lower rate of return in exchange for getting some insurance against losses. These investors might buy senior bonds, which may be rated AAA by a nationally recognized rating agency, as an example. But those senior bonds will pay a lower, lower rate of return. Conversely, 
there may be other investors who will seek a higher rate of return on the same pool, but will be willing to sign up for more risk. So now let's say that the 50 loans in this given pool pay an interest rate of treasuries plus 275 basis points. The senior investor will get their principal back when the first 30 loans resolve, regardless of the outcome on the last 20. But they'll receive an interest rate of treasuries plus 150 basis points, say. Conversely, the junior investors will wait for their money to come in from the last 20 loans to resolve. But in exchange for taking this incremental risk, we'll receive a coupon of treasuries plus 300 basis points, up to, say, treasuries plus 1,000 basis points, depending on the particular risk characteristics of a given profile. This example is, of course, highly stylized. In practice, the ratios, the pricing all can vary quite a bit. But I think the fundamental tenet of CMBS is this. It's that risk is sliced, or tranched, as we say in structured credit, into varying profiles to allow all of these investors to come together to participate in attractive credit markets. What a great description of this uh, market. I have a couple of quick follow-up questions. So of that $3 trillion that makes up the structured credit market, how much of that is CMBS? It's about $600 billion. Okay. And you mentioned, um, Tom, that uh, the highly stylized, of course, but uh, there might be 50 loans, uh, commercial mortgages in a CMBS pool. How does that compare to, say, the number of loans that might be in a residential mortgage-backed securities pool or, say, a credit card asset-backed securities pool? So in a commercial mortgage-backed securities deal, there may be one loan in certain cases. That's what the market will call a single property or single asset deal. But more commonly, when we get to conduit CMBS, where many loans from many lenders are sort of short-term funded by a Wall Street bank or a large commercial bank and then turned into a securitization, those could have up to 100 loans, typically more like 70 to 100. There are some other types of CMBS that could have 40, 50 loans, but you know that's sort of the, the typical range. And you compare that with a residential mortgage-backed securities deal, those are going to be 800, 1,000, 2,000 loans or in an auto ABS deal could be up to tens of thousands of loans in a deal. And, and so it's sort of an important distinction because the method of analysis will vary across those sectors when we look across structured credit and its sort of diversity that I mentioned earlier in the call. And it highlights the importance of, within CMBS of taking both a top-down view of where we are in the cycle of the real economy, you know, commercial real estate being a private market operates on its own cycles, but also that's the top down, thinking about interest rates, demographics, regional migration, construction of new properties, et cetera, very 10,000 foot. But the other aspect of the analysis that becomes important because of the number of properties involved is to understand local markets and that bottom-up analysis as well, which we can speak more about. Great. I'm going to ask you about some of the analytical issues that you guys think about. But to drill down even more, what can you tell us about the real estate backdrop itself for the different types of asset classes that you look at, office, hotel, commercial, multifamily, et cetera? Sure, Jay. So I'd say all commercial real estate right now sort of is facing uh, up to three potential thematic pressures. The first is cyclical pressure, both from economic contraction and changes in the rate environment. The second is capital pressure or what our CIO and Walsh sometimes calls capital rationing, that relating to a world where 
investors have fewer dollars to spend and may choose to do so with higher discretion, disadvantaging less favorable opportunities. And lastly, secular pressures, as some properties are more useful than others at different points in time, and not only in the short run, but potentially over the medium to longer term. So having level set these three kind of prongs of pressure that can apply, maybe we can talk about how they apply to certain property types in the now. So certainly the office sector is in focus and for good reason as it's staring down all three of these risk drivers. Cyclical pressure is high. Layoffs and reductions in space usage are flowing through directly as are tenant bankruptcies, reducing need for office for many companies. In addition, with loan coupons on CMBS increasing in response to the rate environment, quite literally, there were loans done in early 2022 below 3% coupon. The last transaction I reviewed had a weighted average coupon over 7%. So these increases all translate to higher financing costs and make it more difficult for an owner of a building to achieve a levered return. Cyclical pressures arguably are at all-time highs for office properties. Capital rationing further adds a problem. The failures of Silicon Valley and signature banks were arguably the perfect storm for CRE. Banks are the largest lenders against commercial properties. Of the $4 trillion in commercial real estate debt outstanding, banks represent over $1.5 trillion of that exposure. Regional banks have had disproportionate market share of certain verticals. The failure of these banks pulls important capital out of the system at a point in time when interest in financing office properties especially is at an all-time low. Available dollars for both equity investment, given fears of the unknown, and debt investment, giving broader forces, is compressed. Add to that the third pressure of secular change. Hybrid work feels here to stay. Commuter data suggests 70 to 80% rates of return to office in major metros with some dispersion. Suffice to say that it is now consensus view across all operators and lenders against office properties that the need for full-time office space is decreasing, and with it, so too may be the need for overall footage. There are some in the market saying that things are turning. Jones Lang LaSalle, for instance, recently put out work on positive quarter-over-quarter leasing trends suggesting we're seeing some green shoots, but we remain skeptical. All three forces staring down office properties create a problem that we believe is in the early innings of its ultimate resolution. Perhaps not dissimilar to what we saw with regional malls seven, eight years ago with the move towards more e-commerce trends. My tone will be the same but different if I talk about, say, multifamily properties. Cyclical pressures are rather similar in certain cases. The pressure on fundamentals at the multifamily level is, of course, less acute. Though some sensational headlines poke up, we're seeing slowing rent growth as opposed to inverted rent growth or negative rent growth. We're seeing continued need for multifamily space, continued demand for shelter, but we're seeing some of the peaks of mid-2022 starting to cool off. We also are seeing capital rationing pressure with banks ratcheting back their multifamily lending programs. However, in contrast, when we think about multifamily as a subsector within CMBS, we believe the medium to long-term secular trends are quite supportive. Demand for shelter remains high. The need for future shelter remains material. And while we in the lending game are not in the business of picking every micro point high or low against every property in the country, we, we certainly are focused on the fact that we see a broad opportunity to extend credit at attractive prices into this ecosystem, because despite the dislocations that are happening from cyclical forces and capital pressures, the overall creditworthiness of many loans within the sector remains quite high. 
Now, there are all sorts of flavors in between office and multifamily, ranging from hotels, which have some tailwinds on the back of inflation, through to retail, which is on a path to recovery post-COVID, in many cases, noting continued pressure on some larger format malls. But by and large, we size most things up against these fairly consistent themes and frameworks, so as to be able to compare relative value, both within my sector and across. How big a driver of performance is the macroeconomic backdrop at any point in time? Jay, maybe I can start with this one, um, and, and Tom can jump in as well. What I would say on the macro front is, is commercial real estate, DRE, is a levered asset. Owners of real estate, with some small exceptions, but the vast majority of owners of real estate are borrowing money to complement their equity dollars in order to buy and operate properties. Therefore, as a levered asset class, the value of the assets becomes sensitive to the cost of the liabilities and the debt. So the first point on your question of macro importance is the higher cost of debt caused by higher interest rates. So it's absolutely important. So, you know, for, for a given property, again, using a very stylized example, if the performance and expectations for that property didn't change at all, and the demand for that property type and its usage and local market didn't change at all, but the financing cost went up you know, 150 you know, basis points, 1.5%, that property will automatically start to feel downward pressure on its valuation because any prospective buyer of that property will have to pay more to borrow money to purchase it. So there's sort of an equilibrium pricing that gets enforced. And it doesn't happen quickly. It's sort of happening very slowly as we speak. But the first point on the macro input comes from the liability side of the balance sheet with the higher financing cost. Now, there's, there's other forces at play that Tom can get into in more detail. You know, at the top of the call, we heard about some recent developments on the inflation side, and that certainly is playing out in commercial real estate. There are investors that are very quick to point out that historically, real estate has been a good hedge for inflation and, and, and point to historical data there. But, you know, what we're seeing day in and day out in terms of financials is inflation coming through in the expenses that are incurred to operate these properties. So that's another macro force that's sort of playing in. And maybe Tommy could pick it up and sort of speak to how that flows into valuation and how a potential owner of a, of a property would think about where to price that. Yeah, for certain. It's, it's real. So hotel broadly is probably the best example of the traditional inflation protection one would hope to see in CRE investment. So hotel occupancy rates have actually ticked down this year, given some pressures on travel trends. And expenses of running hotels have actually inched up. But given the overall resiliency of the economy, room rates have been able to price up to a level that actually makes hotels more profitable in the immediate term than they were, say, one, two, three years ago in many cases. So inflation protection is actually being achieved by investors in certain hotels who effectively get to restrike rents every day. Hotels, however, are highly exposed to cyclical forces. So in particular, in CMBS investment, where one is lending money in the senior part of the capital structure versus taking equity risk, one must prepare for sort of you know, an adjustment that could take place during a period of correction. All that said, thinking differently about inflation, it's not always the case that higher rents can be passed through just because other costs in the economy are, are rising. Owners of office properties in Chicago, for instance, will tell you their expenses largely are increasing, but their ability to pass through rents is decreasing as a function of less demand for that space. 
So secular forces do overlay and create nuance that make macro drivers not necessarily the only consideration in reviewing real estate. Further considerations at the level of property type, geography or location, and even specific property in certain cases uh, can, can vary the analysis quite a bit. So we certainly consume macroeconomic information and level setting top down how we think pools of loans may perform, but we apply bottoms up analysis where applicable to make sure that we assess any idiosyncratic risks that may live beneath the surface. It sounds like macro inputs are, are kind of broad inputs, but there are other important items to consider when investing in these sectors. I'd say that's right. As a quick example, Jay, for argument's sake, let's just say that office values are down 30% on average, broadly speaking. You could debate this number higher or lower. So let's just take it as fact for this conversation. If we say that offices are down on average 30%, that wouldn't mean that every office building in the country would be down by 30%. That would mean that some buildings are maybe down 5%, perhaps increased in value if they have really good high quality investment grade tenancy, for example. While other buildings could fall quite a bit in value, far beneath 30% declines, should they have particular headwinds that they're facing. In the case of an office property, let's just expound on that example. A property that has a 20-year lease to an investment-grade tenant certainly will be of higher value than a property that's looking at high rates of vacancy due to bankruptcies of its underlying tenants or heavy lease rolls through which tenants can shop for different space at different buildings as their leases come due. So thematically, differences are clear to see, but in true bottoms-up analysis, we actually have to look at individual financials of properties. We analyze the in-place net operating income and trends in those figures. We analyze changes in tax assessments. We analyze changes in traffic around the property and its effective uh, value to each potential user of the space. And in so doing, we actually find wide distributions, um, even within single metros or property types, and we try to reflect those in our analyses of CMBS bonds. You know, the one thing I would add on that point to what Tom said is it's because of this high dispersion, it is difficult to create pinpoint outcomes and make pinpoint forecasts. And, and really, this comes back to not just what we do in CMBS, but our general ethos and DNA in structured credit and how we think it's prudent to approach the market in general, which involves stress testing across a wide range of scenarios in order to look at what failure modes could emerge, which is a different thing than saying we're going to forecast the future down to a specific scenario. So, you know, especially at a time like now in commercial real estate, which is a, a very slowly evolving story where there will be winners and losers. And hindsight, of course, will be 2020, a year from now or two years from now or five years from now. But as investors charged with making good risk-adjusted decisions and risk-conscious decisions today, you know, to Tom's point, we want to think about the bottom-up across a range of scenarios um, and sort of that guiding philosophy of, of stress testing and, you know, having the, you know, frankly, the humility to understand there's a lot of things we just don't know is part of the ethos of how we approach things. And it's particularly pertinent for CMBS where there are a fairly small number of loans in these deals that can change the overall outcome for a transaction. So, so Tom, I, I want to move into what you're seeing in CMBS fundamentals and in the technicals. Uh, so why don't you start us off and, and talk about what you're seeing in fundamentals, credit fundamentals in CMBS. 
so I touched a little bit on property fundamentals um, in discussing office and multifamily. In short, offices are having harder times driving rents for the reasons which are obvious. Whereas multifamily uh, loans, you know, back, are backed by properties that have generally been able to charge increasing rents. Rates of rent growth are slowing but remain positive. What we look at more so from a CMBS perspective, though, in tying back to discussing the difference between CRE equity investment and CRE debt investment, is what is the rate at which loans are currently being repaid? Are interest coupons being made in a timely fashion? And are loans being refinanced on schedule? Because little deviations in underlying performance ultimately don't impact loans. And the truth is that at this point in time, the rates of delinquency on CMBS loan payments remain far beneath what we saw in the period of COVID, for instance. And the rate at which CMBS loans are being refinanced also remains healthy at about 70% as compared to maybe 80% rewinding a quarter or two ago. So properties are doing okay generally, noting some office outliers because the world keeps spinning. People keep paying their rents. People keep living their lives. And as a function of that, CMBS fundamental data remains strong. However, we flagged in recent fixed income sector reviews in the CMBS space some significant warning signs from our capital monitors. Specifically, in commentary shared later last year and earlier this year, we made observations about the Federal Reserve Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey, which showed meaningful pullbacks in CRE lending by the bank community. Both demand for loans from senior loan officers at banks, meaning like how much interest do they have in doing new loans, and the lending standards at which they would extend credit you know, as, as a, you know, in a survey gathering what would be the requirements, LTV, et cetera, that would compel one to create a loan, went down, got more challenging. So compounded with the Silicon Valley and Signature Bank failures, the most powerful risk signal that we're seeing relates to capital in this space. Kartik mentioned this is a levered asset class. Most people who buy buildings and new acquisitions are doing so with interest-only debt, and they rely on future refinancings in order to pay back that debt and ultimately realize the value of their properties. So while everything is fine in terms of property operations now broadly, certainly there are cracks, but broadly the pressures are, are slow to build. The concerns that we have relate to this sort of slow moving train of capital being rationed away from a space that requires capital both to refinance itself and to improve properties to compel um, more use cases and more investment. Yeah, this all leaves us with a, a fairly simple takeaway, that we still have performing credits in our space that can create good risk-adjusted returns for prudent investors that can assess risk through cycle. However, there should be an assumption that over any meaningful hold period, there could be deviations that one should prepare for. And this compels us to take a more medium to long-term approach when assessing CRE credit risk. And how does this translate into changes in the technical picture, what trends are you seeing driving the market right now? So on the technical side, CMBS trading volumes have been light, but fairly normalized. There haven't been a lot of dramatic new issuance. New issuance, in fact, is down something like 70% in CMBS versus where we were at this point last year. And that's sort of a reflection of 
the underlying commercial real estate market where transactions are down something like 55% year to date. And that's sort of the raw ingredients, some of which end up in CMBS from those underlying commercial real estate transactions. So just back on the technicals for the bond market, it's sort of a, an, at an equilibrium point where we've seen the senior part of the capital structure in CMBS widen out post Silicon Valley Bank and the regional bank concerns, but tighten in a bit, but not to the same extent as liquid credit. Whereas the mezzanine part of the CMBS capital structure, so by that I mean third, fourth priority tranches, so single A, triple B type tranches, are still trading relatively wide. Um, so the, the sen- more senior parts of CMBS have you know, rallied, maybe an, an underperformed liquid credit, but, but they've kind of hung in there and have, have been a pretty orderly market. And supply has been low, and there hasn't been a lot of secondary one-directional flow. But what I would say about the technicals in CMBS is I think market participants thus far are pricing in somewhat sanguine risk outcomes, meaning the market has been orderly thus far, which to folks like us at Guggenheim, where we do have a bit of a contrarian bent, makes us a little concerned about what's actually being priced in versus this cycle being a longer one to play out. Um, last point I'll say is there is some concern in the market that over time, as, as levered investors like REITs or credit funds and other uh, private equity or even insurance companies with their sort of statutory leverage or banks have any sort of portfolio rebalancing needs on the bond side, it will flow into a market that has kind of finite liquidity. So I think there's a veneer of orderliness and liquidity in the market now where there's no problem trading small sizes of diverse pools, uh, let's say the conduit market, but you get into specialized single borrower risk and, and there's a lot of market participants that are sort of looking at the calendar saying, okay, rating agencies will eventually restrike their ratings on certain deals that are having problems once those problems have been manifested, reported, um, and, and sort of once the horse has left the proverbial barn. Um, and there may be some amount of selling coming out of financial institutions. And um, our view is that the market is not pricing that in and is not really set up for that. Um, so even if those flows are not enormous in size, they, they will weigh on valuation. So I think from a technical standpoint, that's kind of our, our current thinking. So this all kind of comes down to price as with anything. So are you buyers or sellers of CMBS right now in the marketplace? Where are you finding value? Sure, Jay. So in in our core fixed income funds, our weighting to CMBS, you know, we are maintaining a position there in some of the lesser followed sectors. It's kind of a smaller position. It's not a big risk overweight right now. And what we see value in is, as with most things in structured credit in general, it's pooled risk um, and more senior tranches off of pooled risk that are not you know, event-driven pin risk, you know, binary type sensitive assets. So what does that mean in real life? So it's generally at this point, um, certain senior tranches backed by uh, commercial real estate backed CLOs. So these are similar to corporate CLOs in that they are um, CMBS or structured credit tranches, their floating rate, that are backed by primarily uh, multifamily loans that are undergoing some level of, um, you know, repositioning. So, you know, it might be an apartment building where half the tenants roll off and they need to do some upgrades and flooring and painting and 
putting in new fixtures, et cetera. But it's not, you know, sort of speculative new construction, anything like that. But they are also not stabilized properties where there is still some execution risk and hence wider pricing. Um, in that part of the market, it's a pretty small niche market, but there we see senior risk deep into the 7%, 8% yield uh, kind of areas on bonds that under very draconian scenarios, just given our, our general outlook that this cycle for CRE is going to take some time to play out, we want to be cautious in thinking about the range of outcomes. But even if things go worse than expected, you know, these are three to four year bonds and um, are, are still highly likely to recover principal. So that, that's one area that we think is interesting. It's not something that's tremendously scalable right now, but you know, as we know from managing multi-sector fixed income portfolios, um, it, it's something that we want to continue um, you know, sprinkling in risk as we see opportunities that come up because it's not realistic to think um, you know, that in a credit portfolio, you can just pivot like you could just selling an ETF or something like that. Um, and just pivot your whole position into into something when the opportunity comes up. So I think our general credit view and, and sort of flexibility across the capital structure um, and our general philosophy of looking at, you know, hard to break senior uh, debt off of pooled diversified risk, you know, that, that DNA is going to be with us. But right now where we're implementing that is on a very selective basis at the top of the capital structure where we see some of these um, you know, elevated yields that we think are, are overcompensating us for the long-term actual credit risk. Can I ask where you're finding value or where you're avoiding? Because of our view that this is an early, slow-moving cycle and we're in the early stages, we want to stick with the higher conviction trades. And higher conviction trades, you know, it's, it's sort of easy to, it's not easy to it is not easy to paint CMBS risk with a very broad brush. Um, you know, it would be it would be easy or cliche even to sit here and say, with elevated risk comes opportunity, and it's an asset selection market, and that's all certainly true. Uh, you know, those are true statements. But but there's a dimension of time that's important as well, and an aspect of when you think about sort of semi-distressed trading in a lot of cases weighing upside versus downside in a market where these catalysts are not going to emerge tomorrow and they're going to be very slow moving. So, so what does that mean in terms of what we're avoiding right now? Um, I think when you get to single property risk, um, especially at higher leverage points where there's potential tenant roles, potential for obsolescence risk, longer term um, secular headwinds that haven't fully played out, those are not high conviction trades for us. And it's generally what we're staying away from because we the, that range of outcomes is very wide and therefore risk becomes very hard to price. So it's easy to sort of fall in love with certain scenarios um, where you can say, hey, I think X, Y, or Z is going to happen. I discount my cash flows um, and that's what I'll pay for the bonds. But I think philosophically, our view is that we want to look across a broad range of stressful scenarios. And if it's not something that comes back as a high conviction trade, whether that's by property type, leverage point, local regional market, tenancy, et cetera. Um, we're going to shy away from that right now. But Tom, I'll turn to you if you want to elaborate further there in terms of things we're, we're concerned about avoiding right now. No, I, I think that's all spot on. What Kartik just shared is that we see the value as in the grind. We see the value as identifying a way to assess these risks through cycles, to buy bonds that we believe will stand up through recessionary times. Whether or not they come, we're prepared. And then to deploy consistently against that backdrop. You know, I think 
we'll continue to hear a number of my peers in, in the CMBS space and across CRE broadly, folks sort of talking about picking out snowflake situations, special situations, and trades like that surely will happen. But I think the discipline that we bring to consistently identifying and deploying into well-enhanced senior credit at any point in the cycle is, is absolutely something that will bear fruit. And with the space where it is now, both given the rise in the risk-free rate and wide credit spreads, we're looking at yields of anything from 7 to 9% on securities that we're very comfortable can withstand severe recessionary con uh, conditions while paying us back and generally on time. So it's an exciting opportunity now. It hopefully will continue to be available in, in episodes throughout points in time, and we'll certainly continue to focus. It's probably the highest yields that I've seen on these profiles in my 15-plus year career, and I hope to find ways to capitalize. And one thing I'll add, you know, th these opportunities are presenting themselves now as the current stock of outstanding credit risk and bonds are repricing. And so picking up liquidity premium and complexity premium on um, near senior or upper mezzanine kind of risk is, is appealing now. But I think as we look forward and think about positioning ourselves as the cycle plays out, uh, the next evolution we would expect is that lending will start coming back on higher conviction property types. And so that'll first show up in the CRE market, then it'll show up in the CMBS market. So that's sort of phase B of this correction. And then sort of the next, next phase of that is, you know, once fundamentals start to become more stable and visible on the lower conviction assets, so office, for example, then you'll start to see equity capital coming back. But that's a long ways out. There's still loan maturities that need to happen. There will be some tr um, um, transition financing needs that come up there too. But but th that's kind of how we expect this to play out over time. And, you know, I think there'll be more conversations to have as this cycle plays out. Great. Now, Karthik, I would be remiss, you're the head of structured credit for Guggenheim, I'm remiss if I didn't ask you about the, you know, the rest of the vast structured credit market. Please take us on a high-level tour of technicals, fundamentals, yield spreads, whatever you want to talk about across the waterfront, please. Sure. So again, structured credit for us is the four main sectors, CMBS, which we've just spoken about, RMBS, which is backed by non-government guaranteed residential mortgage loans, CLOs, which are collateralized loan obligations that are backed by senior secured corporate bank loans, and ABS, uh, which is backed by contractual cash flows on a very wide range of uh, consumer and commercial assets. So starting with R, since we've spoken about CMBS, moving down to RMBS, you know, some of the uh, factors you'll hear me talk about are common across all of these sectors. And the first one being very low issuance. So with mortgage rates being where they are throughout all of last year and this year, the uh, demand in the economy for homeowners to refinance existing mortgages is extremely low. And the affordability of homes has come down, so the demand for prospective homeowners to buy a new home and create a mortgage is also low. So both of those potential sources of mortgage loan supply are low, and so RMBS supply is low. And why I bring all this up is, you know, starting with the technicals in the RMBS market, they're actually quite favorable. So with, you know, as, as our listeners know, and we've spoke about in previous podcasts, one of the attributes 
attributes of mortgages is prepayments. And every month, some amount of principal is coming back. And what that means for us as bond investors is your investment slowly gets paid back every single month. It's not like a corporate bond where you wait, you know, three, five, 10, 30 years, and then you get all of your money back at once. You know, with RMBS, every month there's money coming back that's um, paying back a small part of your investment. So while all of that payback is happening very slowly, there's also very low issuance. So there's just not a lot of supply and the technicals in that market are favorable. Um, in terms of opportunities with that low supply, uh, there's some opportunities in the secondary market. There's some opportunities in new issue. Uh, a couple of areas that we think are interesting, um, one of which is in the non-qualified mortgage or non-QM space. Um, you know, there is an element of security selection and asset picking going on for us there. But we think overall, this is a part of the market where AA and AAA rated securities that we stress to losses that are higher than residential mortgages experienced in the GFC back in 2008 and 9, um, still return par um, and yield north of six and a quarter percent right now. So that's very appealing. Um, the historical spread of those bonds, so the difference in yield between the non-QM residential mortgages and liquid credit corporate single-A indices, if you go back before COVID, the difference in yield between those sectors or the difference in credit spread, excuse me, was about 25 basis points or a quarter of a percent. So they basically traded at, let's call it roughly the same yield unless you squint really hard. Now the difference is um, you know, much wider. It's more like 80 basis points. And again, we're talking about a higher rated secured asset in RMBS versus a, uh, an unsecured obligation in the corporate market. So um, we like that sector a lot, and it's somewhere we've been pretty focused. Um, moving away from RMBS to CLOs, um, CLOs have actually had reasonable issuance this year until like the last month or so where things have quieted down a bit. And, and that market has rallied a bit and, and started to catch a bit after kind of languishing and, and you know, for the prior couple of quarters. But even with that um, and the fact that, you know, we are a little cautious on CLOs just given the underlying risk are below investment grade bank loans. Um, you know, so right now uh, what we're really spending time thinking about in our analysis is how do we get paid purely for complexity risk in CLOs as opposed to taking uh, pinpoint credit views. And what that leads us to is the senior part, so the AAA, AA part of the CLO capital structure. And these are floating rate, um, you know, three-month SOFR-based floaters. Um, and at the top of the capital structure, we're primarily getting paid for complexity risk of analyzing these structures and their triggers and the collateral uh, pools and reinvestment allowances for the collateral manager, and also some average life variability. CLOs are not callable for two years, um, and then they have some reinvestment period that extends beyond that. And so, you know, sometimes CLOs are a two-year investment, sometimes they're a five-year or a six-year investment. I think on average, AAA CLOs are about a four-year investment if you look back historically over the long term. And so if you, if you call it on average a four-year floating rate investment, um, you know, those yields are in the, in the low sixes right now on a floating rate asset that under, under a Great Depression-type scenario stresses that we run um, still return par. So that's interesting in CLOs. Um, on occasion, there are uh, middle market CLOs, which are backed by pools made to smaller companies that are generally more private equity oriented. Uh, you know, and those, those yield something like 70 basis points higher um, at, at that part of the capital structure, maybe a little less at the AAA level. So those are, those are appealing as well. 
Um, and then finally, in ABS, you know, ABS, one of the, the challenges and opportunities there um, is that it's an incredibly diverse market. So, you know, what does a auto loan ABS have in common with a data center ABS? And just the ABS label, really, but the economics are completely different. The underlying driving uh, forces and risks are, are completely different. But in the ABS market, um, a lot of issuers um, come to that market when the cost of financing is favorable. And right now it is not, just given that interest rates in general are higher than where they have been in previous years. But upcoming maturities will induce some sponsors to come to market. So we see selective deals coming, whether in whole business or in uh, rate reduction utility related sectors. Um, and, and a, a wide scattering of, of other sectors in ABS. But for some of those on-the-run sectors, these are generally going to be single-A or triple-B-rated bonds. Um, you know, and we're talking about whole business or, or um, you know, some of the more liquid visible sectors, you know, six, six and a quarter percent yield there, which is pretty interesting relative to liquid credit and, and high grade on a hold to maturity pure income basis. So, you know, ABS, the opportunities are more in the secondary market. These are bonds that are trading at discount dollar prices, which suppresses the call optionality to the sponsor in the event that spreads do tighten. So there's some good average life stability there. Um, and that part of the market, um, the, the pickup to corporate bonds um, is, is still somewhat attractive. So, you know, we are a little cautious on CMBS, but when we, we and, and we think the opportunities will emerge over time and we want to be on our front foot what as that happens and continue to sort of sprinkle in attractive, high conviction, income oriented trades in CMBS. But when we start rotating away to some of these other sectors where there are not the same level of fundamental concerns, um, we do see some attractive uh, both income and potentially total return opportunities in uh, RMBS. ABS and, and also to, in a more conservative sense in CLOs. Uh, within the portfolios that we manage, what are the current trends that you're seeing in the allocations to structured credit in general and then CMBS in particular? Sure. So in, in our core fixed income um, strategies, you know, our overall risk appetite is kind of in the middle of the range of, of its own range over time. So meaning if you look at sort of our high-low on our risk appetite in those strategies. We're kind of in the middle of the range. Um, our macro outlook is for a recession, albeit a mild one. However, valuations are already pricing in a very mild recession, so we're somewhat cautious on our total risk positioning. So, you know, are we super um, defensive on the defensive end of our risk spectrum? We are not. Um, you know, we're kind of in the middle of the range. Now, with respect to structured credit, um, it is an area where we are looking to add and have been incrementally adding in areas where there is not high market beta, but there is high um, yield or income potential relative to the fundamental risk. So RMBS, as I mentioned, you know, we're talking, you know, three, four, five-year, um, extremely lost remote, even in a GFC-type housing scenario, bonds that trade north of 6%, um, you know, the 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 duration and mark-to-market volatility on those bonds is pretty mild relative to a 10-year corporate bond or, you know, a 20-year, um, you know, corporate obligation. So, you know, at the margin, we are we are um, increasing capital deployment to those types of trades. In CMBS, it's something like a 5% position um, in, in our core fixed income strategies um, that's primarily weighted towards some of the off-the-run commercial sectors, and particularly with high credit enhancement, 
you know, higher conviction multifamily type underlying collateral. And that's something that would go up as the opportunity presents itself. Um, but we are willing to be patient um, and sort of, and, and, you know, sort of wait for the ball to come to us, so to speak. And in the meanwhile, doing our homework on, on thinking about how to um, complement the top-down macro view with the bottom-up property and loan level analysis. Well, this has been uh, a terrific uh, window into the CMBS market. I want to thank you both. Um, but uh, before I let you go, is, are there any other issues in the market for, for CMBS or uh, any other um, you know, concepts that we don't think we've uh, spoken about enough? No, I don't think so, Jay. I mean, we, we've covered sort of the important drivers in the market today. We've covered pricing. We've covered, you know, how we're thinking about risk and income, um, you know, and, and opportunities and sort of the timeline and uh, that is needed to avail oneself of those opportunities. I think as time goes on, we will see the microstructure of the market change. You know, there may be more of an emergence of, uh, you know, reemergence of of lending around high conviction properties, and then perhaps transitional financing starts to become, you know, quote, a thing. Um, and then eventually we'll see, um, you know, lending coming back and, and sort of equity opportunities um, in some of the more challenged parts of the commercial real estate market, which uh, other folks around the firm are spending um, time on. But I, I, I hopefully from the security side of things, and the bond side of things, we've been able to share um, you know, some transparency around our thinking and views right now. Well, well thank you guys very much. Uh, before I let you go, there was there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, I would just thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Structured credit is a complex and interesting place, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, oftentimes jargon and complexity and opacity to it. But hopefully through these conversations, we can shed a little bit of light of uh, how we approach things and uh, what's challenging and what's interesting uh, in the market now and, and where we can hopefully add some returns uh, uh, for our clients. Well, thanks. We, we do try and uh, keep away from jargon, and you guys have been terrific uh, and good sports for uh, uh, for sitting still for an hour and talking to me. Um, uh, Karthik and Tom, thank you again for your time and for joining us today, and uh, please come back and visit with us soon. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Jake. Well, my thanks once again to Karthik Narayanan and Tom Nash for joining us today. And thanks to all of you who have joined us for our podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please rate us five stars. And if you have any questions for Karthik or Tom or any of our other podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com and we will do our best to answer them on a future episode or offline. I'm Jay Diamond. And we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, visit GuggenheimInvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. 
High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. Investments in securities of real estate companies and companies related to the real estate industry are subject to the same risks as direct investments in real estate. These risks include, among others, changes in national, state or local real estate conditions, obsolescence of properties, changes in the availability, cost and terms of mortgage funds, changes in the real estate values and interest rates, and the generation of sufficient income. Structured credit, including asset-backed securities or ABS, mortgage-backed securities and CLOs are complex investments and not suitable for all investors. Investors in structured credit generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some structured credit investments may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile and they're subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risks to investing in loans directly, including credit risk, interest rate risk, counterparty risk and prepayment risk. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. This podcast contains opinions of the author or speaker, but not necessarily those of Guggenheim Partners or its subsidiaries. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors LLC.